Welcome, everyone. Um, we are uh, excited to see everyone um, at our Big Tent Spotlight Speaker Series. For those of you who have not attended before, Big Tent USA is a national grassroots advocacy organization that promotes a pro-democracy platform focusing on the rights of all Americans, civic engagement, and good governance at the local, state, and federal level. Founded by a group of women in 2019, Big Tent breaks through the political noise and provides a firm basis in reality, concrete action items, and innovative activism opportunities for our community to make a positive difference throughout the United States and beyond. We are an inclusive coalition of women and men who value preserving our democracy, defending women's rights, and protecting our children. I am thrilled to welcome Stephen Levitsky, Daniel Zivat, authors of the bestseller, How Democracies Die, and the new book, Tyranny of the Minority. I'm especially grateful to welcome back under our virtual tent, Ian Basson, co-founder and executive director of Protect Democracy, an organization that is the defender of American system of government against the threat of authoritarianism. A quick intro of Ian. He, is previ he previously served as the Associate White House Counsel under President Obama, where his responsibilities included ensuring that the White House com complied with the laws, rules, and norms that protect the democratic nature of our government. His writing on democracy, authoritarianism, the American law, and politics has appeared in prominent publications. He is recipient of the 2023 MacArthur Fellowship, the Skoll Award for Social Innovation, and has repeatedly been named among the 50 most influential people in Washington by Washingtonian Magazine. Ian will introduce our esteemed authors and will moderate their conversation. Again, welcome Ian, Daniel, and Stephen. Dan Ian, take it away. Well, thank you so much, Susan. And I wanna start with a huge thank you uh, of appreciation and gratitude for everybody here tonight uh, who's taking part in this. We are obviously living through a crisis for our democracy here in the United States and a crisis for democracy globally. We're going to talk tonight about some of the historical analogs and prologues to this, many of which are quite frightening in terms of uh, what some of the things we're seeing might suggest about the future road we're on. But what gives me hope, what gives me confidence that we ultimately, notwithstanding some of the disturbing things that I, that I think we probably will talk about tonight, that we will emerge from this stronger, um, is that we are doing the thing that you're supposed to do to protect democracy, which is participating in it. And nothing is a better example of that than all of you being here for this. People ask me all the time, what can I do to protect democracy? The answer is this, it is participate. Democracy is about citizens coming together to talk about self-government, public policy, the issues of the day in groups, how they can stay educated, informed, engaged, and be active citizens. And you're all doing that. So you give me great hope and inspiration. And I want to start there because I think there will be some darker moments and then we'll try to end on a lighter one. Um, but I want to introduce um, our guest tonight, my fellow panelists, uh, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. Just say a brief word about them and, and how the three of us came together. Um, so Stephen is the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies and a professor of government at Harvard University. Uh, he's also the director of the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard. And his research focuses on democratization, authoritarianism, political parties, and weak and informal institutions. Daniel Ziblatt is Eaton Professor of Government at Harvard University and director of the Transformations of Democracy Group at Berlin's Social Science Center. He is also a scholar of Euro European politics and specializes in the comparative study of democracy. Together and separately, Daniel and Stephen have authored numerous books, including, as Susan just mentioned, The, the New Tyranny of the Minority and the preceding How Democracies Die. Um, how I came to meet Daniel and Stephen is coming out of the White House in uh, or after, after I left the White House, after the 2016 election, several of my colleagues in the White House Counsel's Office, the Department of Justice, were concerned about whether all of the rules that we had enforced when we were in government would be upheld by an incoming administration that had shown tendencies towards illiberalism and authoritarianism during the campaign. Concerned about whether we should be doing something about that threat, we reached out to the leading scholars and experts on the topic, including Daniel and Stephen, uh, and they quickly became our advisors and helped us understand that what we were just waking up to a little bit late here in the United States in late 2016 was actually a global trend uh, where democracies around the world uh, had been facing challenges in the 21st century. Early in our conversations, as they helped us to understand that trend, Remember, they reached out to me and said, uh, uh, we're thinking about writing a popular book 
about our research on democracy and authoritarianism. Most of the stuff we've written has been directed at more of an academic audience, but we feel like this is a moment where um, the US is hungry for and might, might do well with a more of a mass market book talking about our studies uh, to which my co-founders and I said, absolutely do that. Um, and they did, and that book became How Democracies Die. Um, here's why I think that book may be one of the mo most important books that's been written in current events and public affairs in recent memory, because it has been reported that as Joe Biden was debating whether or not to enter the race in 2020 and run after he had previously decided that his political career was likely over, that it was reading Daniel and Stephen's book that was one of the decisive factors that pushed him into the race, which may be one of the reasons why The Economist magazine called it, quote, the most important book of the Trump era. And I think if it had that impact, even that might be an understatement. Three years into the Trump era, our organization, Protect Democracy, that Daniel and Stephen helped inspire, um, hosted a symposium on how do we get out of this crisis moment that we're in. Daniel and Stephen submitted an essay that we cross-published with The Atlantic that contained the seeds of what be would become their most recent book, Tyranny of the Minority. And so I want to start, uh, Stephen, if I can start with you, just getting us all up on sort of the same level playing field. For those who have not yet read the book, and I would encourage everyone to read the, both Tyranny of the Minority and How Democracies Die, give us a little bit of a summary of what Tyranny of the Minority is about and bring us all up to speed with a bit of a summary of the book. Uh, tyranny of the minority has two um, two main questions. The first question is, um, so the overall question is why American democracy, which really by all social science theory should be safe, should be stable. Rich democracies almost never die. Old democracies never die. Even if you date the birth of U.S. democracy as recently as 1965, when we achieved full suffrage, U.S. democracy is is um, more than 50 years old, more than 50 years old when when Donald Trump got elected. No democracy over the age of 50 is ever broken down. So we should be safe. And yet we uh, all of us have a, a, a have had an increasingly clear sense that something is wrong, that we that some that, that we're going off the rails. So the the first part of the book asks the question of why the Republican Party turned against democracy. You cannot sustain a democracy in a, with a two-party system in which one of the two parties is not fully committed to democracy. So we show, first of all, um, how the Republicans have turned away from democracy. We have a, a really simple set of criteria. Uh, a party that's committed to democracy needs to always unambiguously accept the results of elections, needs to always unambiguously reject the use of political violence and needs to always unambiguously break with anti-democratic extremists in their own ranks. And we show how the Republican Party, uh, which used to be a pro-democratic party, has abandoned those, those really simple principles in recent years. And then we ask the question of why that's happened. The second half of the book um, argues that we would actually be okay, uh, despite the Republicans' authoritarian turn, if our democracy were like other democracies in which popular majorities actually rule. Because as you all know, MAGA, Trump, Trumpism have never represented a majority of Americans. Not for one day have they represented a majority of, of, of Americans. In fact, we argue in the book that for the first time in the 21st century, a consistent, stable, solid majority of Americans adheres to the basic principles of what we call multiracial democracy. They uh, accept norms uh, or they, they um, support uh, the idea of living in a diverse society and they strongly support norms of racial equality, which are the, the basic pillars of multiracial democracy. Believe it or not, you could never find consistent majorities of Americans who supported that prior to the 21st century, but today that majority is there. The problem is that majority is hurling itself against the world's most counter-majoritarian institutions, institutions that allow partisan minorities to consistently thwart and sometimes even govern over majorities. And we, the book asks why those institutions came about in the United States and shows that the United States um, wasn't the only country in the world that had these really excessively counter-majoritarian institutions. 
but that other democracies across the world have uh, over time gradually dismantled or weakened those counter-majoritarian institutions and essentially become more democratic. And the United States, for various reasons that we discussed, has not. It's gotten stuck in what are essentially pre-institutions from a pre-democratic era. And that threatens, for reasons that we lay out in Chapter 6, to throw us into minority rule, in which a partisan minority is, is able to win power without actually winning electoral majorities. And that, of course, is not very democratic. Just to wrap up, in the final chapter, we lay out 15 reforms that we believe would, um, by empowering electoral majorities and allowing them to win elections and to govern, would make our system more democratic and help us in various ways move away from this period of constant crisis or, or this feeling of constantly being on the brink of political crisis uh, where we've been the last six, seven years. And I want to come back to some of those recommendations and reforms at the end, but Daniel, I want to, I want to start with kind of the, the beginnings of this, the motivations of, of doing the second book, because if you read How Democracies Die, and, and I spoke to you both in 2016 and 2017, um, you were already pretty alarmed. That's why you wrote that book. And yet, um, in both the Atlantic piece that sort of preceded the new book and in your introduction to the new book, you talk about notwithstanding the level of alarm that you had when you wrote How Democracies Die, you were still surprised um, by just how bad things seemed to go. Uh, and that that sort of seems like that was part of the reasoning behind doing the second book. What were the things that that surprised you and that motivated you to say, hey, we got to we got to come back at this and, and write a bit more on this topic. Yeah, so I guess I would say uh, two, two main points. One, you know, our first book, How Democracies Die, laid out, it was a kind of warning about how democracies get into trouble, um, but really didn't provide an answer to what to do about it. And we often got questions, you know, what do we do about it? And we realized in order to answer that question, we had to do a kind of deeper diagnosis of not, you know, what, what could go wrong, but why things seem to be going wrong. And so we did a kind of deeper dive, a deeper diagnosis into that. And as we did that, uh, and as un events unfolded around us, we became increasingly worried. In particular, you know, I think pretty clearly the events of January uh, 6, 2021 were a real turning point for, for most Americans, I think, you know, where this really hit home, you know, this effort to, over to, to thwart a peaceful transfer of power was just a, you know, overt kind of thing that we just would have never expected, that most Americans never expected. You know, we had in our in our first book, we had one of the things that had motivated that book was in the back in the campaign of 2015, 2016, Donald Trump saying, you know, he may not accept the results of elections if he lost. Well, you know, we, we you know, we didn't really expect for somebody to, in fact, reject the results of elections. And that's what we saw on January 6. So that was a that was a big thing that the actions of the Trump administration in that key moment. But I think the thing that really got us, uh, you know, focused on this was the degree to which the Republican Party and political elites surrounding Trump more generally, although they you know, very quickly condemned this, uh, then quickly within several months stood by and essentially uh, treated this event as if it were a non-event, or in fact treated the people who attacked the Congress as heroes, uh, or essentially tried to rewrite the history and to say that this wasn't really a threat to democracy. And, and what really made us worried was you know, when we had studied democracies in other parts of the world at other points in time, you know, there's always authoritarians. There's people who attack parliament buildings. There's people who carry guns and who are threats to democracy. But when democracies really get into trouble is when mainstream politicians around them, rather than condemning this, saying this is outrageous, having nothing to do with this, when mainstream politicians play along with these kinds of figures, that's when democracy gets into trouble. So 1920s, 1930s Europe, it was mainstream politicians who put the final nail in the coffin, essentially, of, of democracy. Uh, and, and, you know, in the 21st century as well, in many instances, it's mainstream politicians who stand by, who acquiesce in the face of threats to democracy. That's when democracy gets into trouble. And we began to see lots of that in the United States over the last two years. And so that makes us very worried. So that, that I think, was the thing that really heightened the alarm for us um, and prompted us to write this book. Um, Daniel, let me stay with you for a second, because on that point of the 1920s, 1930s Europe, one thing that you guys wrote in How Democracies Die has stuck with me ever since, and I've repeated it as many times as I can, which is a comparison you make between how mainstream parties in Belgium and Finland reacted to extremists versus how mainstream parties 
in some other countries reacted and sort of the difference in outcomes. Can you say a little bit about what happened in Belgium and Finland and how they're compared to places like Italy and Germany? Yeah, so as I said, you know, democracies tend to get into trouble. I mean, this happens, you have, you know, you know, people in the streets that are armed to threaten democracy. And the, the, the key question is how do mainstream elites respond to that? And what happened in Belgium and Finland in the 1930s, like in Germany and Italy and France, there was kind of fascist parties who identified with Hitler on the rise, who were gaining lots of support. This is kind of where the energy was. And so the key question, as in Germany and Italy and Belgium and, and Finland, Similarly, the question was, what do the, how are the mainstream elites going to respond to this? There's great temptation when you are a politician who's an establishment politician who's been around for a long time to see this kind of energy on your extreme and to think, you know, hubristically think, well, I can tap into this. I'm the experienced political hand. I can kind of manage this. I can use this energy to, to ride this to power. Um, and so in Belgium and Finland, just as in other places, this was the case. In, in Belgium in particular, I'll use this as an example. You had a, a very conservative Catholic party um, that was didn't like the socialists. These were the two main parties that were democratic parties playing the democratic game. And you had the rise of a fascist party. And that Catholic party, these conservative elites saw this fascist party and thought, well, maybe this we could work together with these guys and sideline the socialists. Uh, what happened, though, at a key moment in Belgian history is the Belgian king called all of the main parties, the, the, that is the conservatives and the socialists into a room and said, under no conditions can any of you uh, form a coalition with the fascists. And the Catholics were sort of tempted to do, they hated the socialists. Um, and uh, you know, you don't need a king to do this. You need people with political judgment and political courage. And in the case of Belgium, it just happened to be a kind of king who was a figurehead. He said, you know, I, I, I really suggest that you guys not do this. And in fact, the, the Catholics refused to form a coalition with the fascists. They worked together with the socials, although disagreeing about every policy issue, but with a shared commitment to democracy, kept the fascists out of power, and Belgium democracy survived. And you know, eventually it did collapse when the Nazis invaded, but democracy remained, uh, you know, in fact, endured. And you know, again, the lesson here is that when mainstream parties overlook are willing, at least in the short run, to overlook their substantial policy difference out of a shared commitment to democracy, that democracy survives. When they don't do that, that's when democracy gets into trouble. So this is yeah. why in chapter eight, the, the key institutional reform that we call for is the establishment of a monarchy. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. no that, that's the solution no, to protecting kidding, democracy. Kidding. No, yeah. no, that's a joke. Yeah, but well, I mean, can I can I just say, I mean, one other one other very kind of clear con contrary case is, you know, there was an assault on the French parliament in 1934 uh, by a group of veterans and militia groups uh, as they were counting votes in the French parliament. Mainstream politicians in that case uh, mainstream center-right politicians in that case kind of were in on the deal, knew that this was happening, didn't hold these guys to account. And within six years, French uh, democracy collapsed. And many of those people who attacked the parliament building in the 1930s went on to serve in the Nazi sympathizing Vichy government. And so if you don't hold the guys to account to attack your Congress or your parliament building, they're going to come back another day. So I think that's, again, a kind of a key lesson to draw from that. Unless and we all more become reason. monarchists, let's remember that, of course, it was the king in Italy um, who was the one who actually decided to make the deal to ride Mussolini's energy to power, yeah. thinking we can sideline that buffoon once he gets there, only to find out that, that was not going to be so easy. Um, so, so, Stephen, I, I, I'll admit I have a little bit of whiplash on one point, which is that I will just say as a, as a lawyer uh, who's done a lot of work on civil rights throughout my career, I have typically found myself in the position of defending minority rights um, that for most of American history have been under assault. And you saw uh, people concerned about the fairness of democracy trying to protect minority rights. Um, and now we find ourselves in a situation where it's actually, as you described, the majority will that is struggling to sort of see itself translate into political power and policy. And Obviously, there's a role for majority will. There's a role for minority protection. How 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 do we think about these two different sets of interests in a in a in a liberal democratic system? Help us make sense of that. That is a a great question and a really important one, Ian, and one that we spent a lot of time thinking about because democracy, as you know very well, absolutely requires the protection of minority rights. Modern democracy is is liberal democracy. It, it, it combines majority rule with the protection of minority rights. W without minority rights, there can be no democracy. Um, so there are some minority rights that must always be protected from majorities. 
uh, and uh, from the whims of, of, of temporary majorities. And, and there are two that we specify in the book. One, which is the, the set of rights that you've devoted part of your career to defending, is basic civil rights, the rights of all individuals to vote, to free expression, to freedom of assembly, to freedom of, uh, of, of speech, uh, and um, freedom from discrimination, freedom of conscience, et cetera. Those basic individual rights, many of which are enshrined in the Bill of Rights, must always be protected uh, from the whims of, of, of even the largest majorities. That's why we have the Bill of Rights. That's why we must have an independent judiciary, probably with some constitutional review power. The second minority right that must be protected is the um, or is the the rights to compete on a on a on a on a level playing field. The majority should not be able to use either popular majorities or legislative majorities to change the rules of the game, the political rules of the game, in ways that disadvantage or weaken or even outlaw the opposition. It, that that is the kind of uh, majority tyranny that we saw in Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, that we saw in Orban's Hungary, that we began to see uh, in, in uh, Israel and Netanyahu. The, so it, it should it should never be the case that a simple majority is is is, is able to change the political rules of the game. Um, so those are two minority rights: the right to fair competition and the right to basic civil liberties that must always be protected from majorities. The thing is that there are other um, areas, other realms that are not necessarily essential minority rights. And there are two areas where we believe the majority should prevail. Uh, and, and those two areas are elections, that the, uh, the, the party that wins more votes should win public office. I cannot think of a theory of liberal democracy that, that points us in any other direction. Uh, and secondly, with with regular legislation, those who win majorities, those who win elections should have a power to govern. They should pass majorities and legislatures should be able to pass legislation as long as it's consistent with with basic individual rights. So whereas uh, civil rights and the democratic rules of the game must be protected from majorities, elections and legislatures should, in fact, be governed by majority rule. And so the counter-majoritarian institutions that protect partisan minorities in the legislature or empower partisan majority minorities in elections are not necessarily essential for democracy. I would argue they're antithetical to democracy. And uh, one, one of the things we point out in the book is, um, although the U.S. does have some essential counter-majoritarian institutions that we would not uh, ever think about, uh, about touching, the Bill of Rights and Independent Judiciary, um, there are other kind of majoritarian institutions that enter into this realm of elections and, and legislation and which are really, uh, really quite undemocratic. The Electoral College, uh, several aspects of the U.S. Senate, uh, Supreme Court uh, with lifetime tenure security uh, and, and the extraordinary difficulty of changing the U.S. Constitution. I'm going to stick with you, Stephen, and let me just note that I'm going to ask maybe one or two more questions, then I'm going to open it up in the chat. So if you have questions, please write them into the chat. I'll go through there and try to moderate uh, and, and pick from there things I think will be good for keeping this lively. Um, but you, you talk about some of the counter-majoritarian institutions that we have in this country, whether it be the Electoral College, I assume by uh, sort of choke points on majorities being able to pass legislation. That's a reference perhaps to the filibuster or other ways in which it can be extremely difficult for majority to actually enact its the agenda on which it ran. Um, what are you, Earlier you alluded to the fact that other advanced democracies may have had aspects of some of these counter-majoritarian institutions at various points in time, but have sort of, uh, you've written about how they've kind of leapfrogged us. Um, they've made reforms and uh, have many of them are much more healthy democracies and more advanced democracies than we are. Can you give some examples of other countries that had some of these counter-majoritarian features, but then went and, and updated their systems and, you know, compare that to, to what has happened here? Sure. Um, and uh, Daniel, Mike, uh, who's our Europe expert, may be able to, to, to jump in with some examples as well. But we, we began back in the late 18th century uh, with the um, really far and away the most progressive and democratic constitution in the world. At the time and well into the 19th century, most European 
systems were still monarchies. They still had uh, monarchic vetoes. They had unelected or um, really, really badly gerrymandered legislatures that were completely unrepresentative. They had limits on suffrage. Uh, they had filibuster-like mechanisms that allowed minorities to, to permanently stall out or block legislation. Um, and so well into the 19th century, most of Europe was less democratic than the United States. In Latin America, which became, which Latin American republics in the early 19th century modeled themselves on the United States and wrote constitutions that were presidentialist and very similar to ours, most of them elected either a system in which presidents were only indirectly elected by Congress or directly copying the United States adopted electoral colleges. And over the course of the 19th and 20th century, many of these institutions were uh, either dropped or watered down. So a classic example, of course, is the House of Lords uh, in, uh, in, in Britain, which was uh, is an unelected body, which had real veto power over uh, critical legislation up until the early 20th century. Extraordinarily undemocratic. That was reformed, however, in the early 20th century. Several countries in Europe, including Sweden, had relatively undemocratic upper chambers, Senate-like bodies that they dissolved, that they eliminated over the course of the 20th century. They went from, from bicameral to, to a single chamber. Um, every, every democracy, every presidential democracy in Latin America, in fact, every other presidential democracy in the world got rid of its electoral college. The last country, other than the United States, to have an electoral college was Argentina. It got rid of it in 1994. Every other established democracy in the world established either term limits uh, or a retirement age for Supreme Court and Constitutional Court justices, leaving the United States as the only established democracy in the world that still has lifetime tenure for its justices. So these are reforms that occurred gradually in fits and starts across other democracies that um, that made us from a pioneer uh, in, the, in the late 18th century, much of the 19th century, into a real democratic laggard by the early 21st century. Uh, and that there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is simply that among democracies, the US Constitution is the most difficult to reform. We, in the, in the book, we spend a few pages comparing the United States to Norway, which started off at, at the time of, uh, you know, in the early 19th century as a, as a monarchy, which much, much less democratic than the United States, but that it modified its constitution uh, I think 300 plus times since the early 19th century and have become so dramatically surpassed the United States and become one of the most democratic uh, societies and democratic regimes in, in the world. So the difficulty of changing the constitution is one reason why we've fallen behind. So we're, we're behind, we gotta catch up. Um, and this gets to you know the, the reforms and so I'll just, I'm gonna, um, go to a couple of the questions here that really get at this. So Judith asked, um, besides voting, which I always do, what else can an individual citizen do that might help? Does writing to our representatives make a difference? Um, the answer to that is yes, I've worked in government, absolutely does. Can changes to campaign finance rules or lobbying money help? Um, sort of teeing up a set of questions about what are the reforms that people should be pushing for? Allison also asked, you know, what are the top five priorities? If you had to rank, what are the things that we could do that would patch us up to these countries that have leapfrogged us and get us back in the lead as the sort of beacon of democracy around the world. Uh, give us some of those that people should be sort of calling their representatives, organizing, talking about and asking for. Uh, who I'll, I'll let you guys pick who wants to tackle yeah, so, that. Yeah, I mean, so we, we in our book, we have 15 proposals. You asked for five. I mean, I think that the, the I mean, the, the broader point here is that if we want to understand the crisis we're in, it's not just about the forces pushing against democracy, it's that our institutions make us vulnerable to this. And so we have, if you know, it's important to focus on the 2024 election, absolutely critical, and to think short-term, but we have to kind of think short-term and long-term simultaneously. And so that, you know, that means thinking about why reforming some of our institutions that will continue to leave us vulnerable unless we address them. And so some of the some of the top, top line items in my mind, and, you know, Steve, you know, may want to add to this, you know, I think, for instance, the filibuster is something that is does not require a weakening or, or eliminating the filibuster um, is something that does not require constitutional change, but it's something that would allow for the passage of voting rights. I mean, there's this bill 
HR1, which is a voting rights bill, which was passed by the House of Representatives when it was in, under the control of the Democrats um, and could have had a majority support in the U.S. Senate, but was blocked by filibuster because the fil you know, requires, you know, the, the super majority requirements to get it through the Senate. And so this held this up. So, you know, if this if filibuster reform were introduced in, in the U.S. Senate, and it's just a Senate rule, something that could be changed, you know, uh, then it would allow for the passage of all sorts of other kinds of very popular legislation, gun control and so on. But in addition to that, voting rights. And I think voting rights is another institutional reform that's critical. So that would be second on my list, which also does not require institutional changes. And the this HR1 bill, which I encourage you all to go look at if you don't already know it, you know, includes things such as you know, protecting voting rights, but also uh, limits on gerrymandering, limits on on uh, um, campaign spending, um, and so you know all of the in the role of money in elections. And so you know, once we do those two th things, I think it then generates momentum for further change. And I just I'll, maybe I'll end with the third thing. So not a list of five, although we do have a list of fifteen. A third thing that I think is really critical is uh, term limits for uh, Supreme Court justices. Uh, this is something that, you know, there's some dispute over whether or not this requires constitutional amendment or not. But, you know, along with Steve's list of what other democracies have done, every other democracy, established democracy in the world has implemented either retirement ages or um, term limits for the equivalents to our Supreme Court, to their national judiciaries. You know, I think, you know, in general, I don't think term limits are great for legislatures, but when it comes to courts, you know, all democracies, you know, face this dilemma of you want judges to be independent. So you don't want them you know, to be voted out and, or, you know, have short-term limits. They want them to be independent and have some discretion. But on the other hand, you know, you, there's this problem that judges, you know, selected by a majority or sometimes even a minority through the Senate, you know, in a previous generation continue to serve because of these lifetime appointments into the next generation. And the kind of sense that our justice system is out of sync with, uh, in particular, the Supreme Court with where the public, where the public is, is due to these long-term, uh, you know, lifetime terms of judges. Um, and so I think this is something also that would be uh, really critical to address. So that, those are just three things, but I think there's other really important things, but I'll maybe give Steve a chance to, to address some of those. Well, first of all, let me just reiterate uh, Daniel's first point or second one, which is that uh, there are a whole series of steps we can take to make it much easier for uh, people to get access to the ballot and, and vote. And, the, and these should be no brainers. It's, the United States is really is, is an outlier in this way, too. We're really one of the only established democracy, in fact, I think the only established democracy I know of, where the government really doesn't lift a finger to make it easy to, for, to vote. In a democracy, people vote. People are supposed to vote. That's the, the defining feature of a democracy. And so in most countries, most democracies in the world, the government makes it easy to, for people to vote. In many democracies, um, it is mandatory to vote. It's considered a civic duty. And it's like paying your taxes. You have to vote. In most democracies, people automatically become registered to vote when they're 18. There's no uh, extra obstacle course to go through to get registered. It's automatic. And in virtually every democracy in the world outside the United States, elections take place on a Sunday or a holiday. So people don't go through the, the great difficulties that many Americans do in uh, sort of getting off work to vote. So these are really simple, no-brainer steps that would uh, would not resolve all the problems facing our democracy, but would, you know, we, we will be a, a much healthier democracy if 75 to 80 percent of Americans were voting in elections as opposed to, say, 55 to 60 percent. Um, to add a fourth one, I would, and this is a little harder, but but it's, it's really quite straightforward, we have to abolish the Electoral College. Um, that's not something that's going to happen before 2024. It's not something that's going to happen immediately, but we have come very close to abolishing the Electoral College before. In, in 1969, 1970, both political parties supported it. Richard Nixon supported it. It passed the House of Representatives with an overwhelming majority, but was blocked uh, and, and had a majority in the Senate, but but, but was blocked. So it, it's not it's not like uh, the abolition of the filibuster is some kind of um, pie in the sky fantasy. Again, it's going to take some work, but it's it's a really simple thing. It's a really important uh democratizing step. And I think in particular, I mean, God forbid, but if Donald Trump wins the presidency via the Electoral College again in 2024, um, you're going to see a whole generation of younger Americans who grew up in a world in which the loser of the popular vote won the presidency three times. Uh, and these folks, for good reason, are not going to believe 
that they're living under a democratic system. It's going to really, really corrode the legitimacy of our of our system. And so we have to, even though we haven't talked about it much in recent years, we need to get back to discussing a very, very simple form, which is we should be directly electing uh, the president like in every other presidential democracy on earth. I'm guessing that the attendees here are a bibliophile group. And so I'll put another plug in for a book on if you want to read more about the Electoral College, its history, efforts to reform it, and uh, the reasons why uh, it should be reformed. Uh, there's a book called Let the People Pick the President by Jesse Wegman, who's a member of the New York Times editorial board. It is an excellent uh, survey of everything you want to know about the history of the Electoral College uh, and, and reasons for reforming it. Um, one thing I learned from it was that uh, there's been a lot of talk uh, that I've certainly heard over the years that the Electoral College was some sort of brilliant compromise that the uh, founders came up with in sort of one of their moments of uh, inspiration. Um, it's actually not the history of what happened. It was the one thing that they actually could, it was the last thing that they couldn't actually resolve uh, during the summer of the Constitutional Convention. And they were so frustrated in the heat uh, with drinking a lot of beer and wanted to get out of there that in the final end, they just signed off on something that none of them really liked. And within months and years of it, most of the leading creators of it came back to recant and regret uh, that they had enacted that. Um, and it was not something that, you know, several years later, really anyone who had been at the Constitutional Convention was fighting to preserve. Um, I also am glad you guys mentioned uh, sort of the right to vote, because I think most people don't realize that we don't actually have a fundamental right to vote in this country. We don't have a constitutional right to vote. Um, and the statutes that have been passed, things like the Voting Rights Act, get at specific ways in which the U.S. code prohibits discriminatory practices in voting, but not, but none of it creates a baseline fundamental right to vote. And in fact, in the bill that, that Daniel referenced, H.R. Uh, 1 from the last Congress, there is a, a what would be the first ever baseline statutory right to vote uh, embedded in that bill. And I'm proud to say that that came out of conversations between one of my co-founders and a former intern at Protect Democracy and a former student of ours uh, at the Harvard Clinic on Democracy and the Rule of Law, uh, and eventually got introduced by Senator John Ossoff and Rep. Mondaire Jones. Uh, so we have some stuff out there that could start to solve some of these problems if we could get actual majorities to be able to pass legislation, as Daniel referenced. I want to pivot a little bit, though, from some of the domestic conversations, there are a couple questions in the chat. I'm trying to uh, abstract out to more of a global level. Um, so Lexi uh, asks, speaking of the 1920s, 1930s Europe, how concerned are you about recent elections of far-right politicians in the Netherlands, Slovakia, Argentina, et cetera? Is this a harbinger, harbinger of things to come? Um, and there's also a question from Kitty about, can you talk about why support for Ukraine? is so important in the battle for American democracy. So, so maybe, um, Daniel, I'll start with you, and then Stephen, if you want to jump in. Um, talk a little bit globally about what's happening to democracy and how what we're seeing in kind of all these other parts of the world um, we should be thinking about as people who care about democracy here in the United States. I think it's an important question to, to understand that what's happening in the United States is not unique to the U.S., that there are these global trends and that many ways our society is very similar to lots of other societies, especially in Western Europe and in other parts of the world. And the real similarity is that there is this kind of 20 to 35% of most national electorates in old established democracies that find the kinds of messages appealing that radical right parties tend to offer. So whether that's the Wilders party in, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, the Swedish Democrats in Sweden, it was a kind of successor to a Nazi party in Sweden, uh, the AFD, the alternative for Germany in Germany, these are radical right parties that are anti-immigrant that uh, tend to be, um, you know, have play with violence in their rhetoric uh, and and really threaten to undermine democracy or, or tend to uh, kind of regard themselves as outsiders to the political system and very an analogous to the MAGA movement, MAGA faction of the Republican Party. And that number is roughly about the same in the United States, this 30 so or so percent. What's striking actually to me when I think about this is how similar this, this kind of demographic is. You know, we tend to think of the US maybe as being different and very different from these other societies, but in many ways it's not. I mean, there's, this number is pretty similar. This is a real regularity across advanced democracies. So what's different about the United States than a lot of these other societies is that in the United States, because of these institutions that Steve has just described, it's possible for this minority faction again, usually not, not more than 30, 35% of the electorate to take control of the kind of key levers of power. 
in uh, in Germany, for instance, the alternative for Germany, although it's you know a frightening party, it has been kept to the sidelines because of the way that that political system, multi-party political system worked, that 30% faction is isolated. It's not in power. And even in places, and this is likely what may happen in the Netherlands as well, and even in those rare instances where this kind of faction has been able to gain access to a cabinet, um, let's say in Italy or in access to government in, in majority power in Sweden, it's always part of a coalition. And so this kind of dilutes the power of this of this faction. In the United States, because we have this career assist, a two-party system, I mean, that's one of the, you know, you'd ask Ian about other reforms. I mean, one of the things we could also talk about is kind of the case for a multi-party system. Because we have a two-party system, the hope was always that if this kind of a faction emerged, it would be kind of, you know, suffocated within one of the two parties. But we what we didn't count on was the prospect that that 30% could take over one of the two parties. And when it does, and it wins an election, it can single-handedly hold control of the presidency. You know, And if we really are unlucky in a kind of trifecta nightmare scenario of 2024, you could have that same 30% dominating you know, all three branches of government. So um, the, the similarities between our societies and other societies, and there's the same kind of resistance to kind of multiculturalism, to economic dislocation, that, that's a problem, but what's even more of a problem is our institutions that give those those uh, groups access to power. Just very quickly on the on the Ukraine thing, I, you know, Steve maybe has something else to say on this. I, mean, I think the reason why um, one of the reasons the Ukraine kind of Russia war is so revealing um, is that you know it, that Russia is Russia has sort of somehow turned into a model for authoritarians around the world. Um, and so, you know, this, you know, it's it's sort of a slogan to say this, but there's something really to it that this is a kind of battle for democracy, and that if Russia wins in Ukraine, this is bad news for democracy um, in in all of Europe. I mean, the authoritarians within Europe are the ones rooting for Putin. I mean, Viktor Orban, although he's they're part of NATO and Hungary, is you know is kind of secretly sort of cheering on Putin and sort of trying to make kind of peace with with Putin. And so I think what you see here really is the kind of it's, it's sort of, you know, there's a lot of other factors at work, but what you really see here is an effort to kind of defend democracy against an authority. And you also see the dangers, I should add, of authoritarianism. And when a single political leader like Putin can write in a little manifesto that he did several years ago that Ukraine is part of Russia, unconstrained leader can from one moment to the next then carry out a war to implement his vision. You know, I, I have a tough time getting my students to, you know, read the readings on my course syllabus. You know, to be an authoritarian, to control a political system and determine the foreign policy, a single leader being able to do this shows you the dangers of authoritarianism. And so we should take that also as a warning. Stephen, did you want to jump yeah. in there? Uh, just to say um, that, although it's, you know, I agree with Daniel that there is this broad, roughly 25, 30-ish percent of electors throughout Western Europe who are, you um, mm -hmm supporting far-right political forces and who are quite illiberal. Uh, the, the parties that they that represent them, in part for the reasons that Daniel elaborated, have not behaved in as openly authoritarian fashion as the Republicans, um, with the exception of some really fascist parties that have not come anywhere near power, like the Golden Dawn in Greece. Most of the far-right in, uh, in, in the Netherlands uh, or in Scandinavia, you know, I don't like these guys, and I disagree with them really strongly in a bunch of, of positions. And there are things to worry about with with regard to them, and they are they are rooting for for Putin, but none of them have rejected the results of elections. Um, for the most part, they have not openly advocated uh, or or condoned violence the way that many Republicans have, um, and they have not, for the most part embraced extremist paramilitaries uh, or uh, or nominated as candidates, people who have tried to overturn elections in their ranks. So even comparing the Republicans to the far right in Western Europe, the Republican Party still comes off as more authoritarian. And that should give us pause. So some of the questions in the chat are getting at kind of what could be driving even the minority fraction to be perhaps slightly more uh, empowered, virulent, broader today. And there's questions about whether 
the media landscape, social media is contributing to it. Uh, Henry has a question. Um, is the 30% of the population across nations being anti-democratic similar across history? If not, is it due to the internet allowing uh, people to unite in, in those factions? Are, are there anything that you can point to in terms of whether our present sort of strain of anti-democratic populism that you're seeing in the U.S. and other places, is that is it higher than it used to be? And if so, why? Uh, how, how do you put this current moment into that kind of historical context? And Stephen, maybe why don't you take that one? Okay, I'm going to, uh, I think Daniel will have some insights on, on change over time in Europe. But let me say about the United States, I'm going to speak in pretty rough terms, but there's always been a pretty um, authoritarian and element in the U.S. electorate and, and a kind of a populist anti-system uh, element in the U.S. electorate. If you go back to support for Huey Long or Father Coughlin or George Wallace in uh, in the 1960s, it, it's, it's not hard to find 20-something, even 30 uh, percent support for, for extremist, uh, sometimes fairly authoritarian figures. There, but there are a couple of, of differences. One, throughout history, um, the authoritarian elements and particularly the um, those who are most, let's call them to, to be benign, racially conservative, those who are most resistant to multiracial democracy, they have been diffused between the two parties. They've been, um, it, as recently as the 1970s, there were more of these folks in the Democratic Party than there were in the Republican Party. But for most of the 20th century, the Republicans had some really far-right sort of racist elements. The Democrats had a lot of far-right conservative racist elements in the South. And because that, that roughly 30% was divided between the two parties, they could be um, kept to the margin. They didn't dominate the national party. But then something changed with the Civil Rights Revolution. With the Civil Rights Revolution, the Democratic Party, which had been the party of Jim Crow for a century, um, gradually became the party of civil rights. And this was the New Deal era still. The Democrats were the dominant party. The Republicans were the, had been the minority party in the United States since the 30s. And the Republican politicians looked out and they saw whites in the South who had been for generations Democrats, overwhelmingly Democrats, very discontented with civil rights and policies, uh, government policies aimed at implementing racial equality, busing, affirmative action, fair housing policies. And, um, and they realized that there was a, a constituency to be tapped. So the Republican Party, trying to win, to expand, doing what parties do, trying to expand its electorate, spent 20 years between Goldwater and Reagan in particular, systematically going after racially conservative whites, especially, not exclusively, but especially in the South. And they were very successful. And so they basically shepherded over the course of 30, 40 years, shepherded the, uh, the white racial conservatives from the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. So in the 21st century, the uh, the, the more authoritarian elements, and especially the more anti-multiracial democracy elements of our electorate, which have always been there, are now overwhelmingly in the Republican Party. And that was, that became, in effect, a primary winning group within the Republican Party. That's what allowed the 30% to capture a single party, as Daniel referenced earlier. So it's really only in the 21st century um, that the Republican Party is dominated by these racially conservative voters. And did you want to add add to that at all? Yeah, I would, just, I would just yeah, I would just say thinking of other countries, you know, why is this happening yeah, everywhere? Everywhere. Um, it's, um, it's, it's oh, I'm hearing myself echo. Uh, it's not just about. Uh, I mean, the U.S. These dynamics have played out because of race and the legacy of slavery. Um, you know, and other uh, West European societies are also becoming incredibly diverse due to immigration. You combine this with you know, the legacies of, of colonialism in, in effect, uh, in part, um, that's part of the story. But as these societies have become the de destinations of diversity and, you, you know, you walk around the streets of Zurich or Amsterdam or anywhere in Europe, I mean, these cities are, are as diverse as American cities. You combine this with some of the economic pressures that are also uh, racking American society. 
And together, these two forces provide, you know, incredibly powerful raw materials for demagogues who, when people feel dissatisfied and disaffected from their politics and dissatisfied with their standard of living, uh, you know, it's very easy to target others. And so I think that dynamic is playing out in Western Europe as well as the United States. And it seems to be taking this particular virulent form, I would say, in the United States, partly because uh, American society has is not only more diverse, but the kind of multiracial democracy in some sense has progressed furthest. And so the pushback against it is strongest, but also that brings it back to our institutions. Our institutions are having this kind of nasty feedback effect on our, uh, on our politics. And insofar as the Republican Party can win majorities, even when, or, or that is win power without winning majorities, can win the presidency without winning majorities. And so the kind of uh, temptation to play with extremist politics is there. And if, you know, if par both parties had to win over 50% of voters to uh, win power, then they, the Republican Party in particular wouldn't be able to play with these kinds of very dangerous uh, kind of politics that they play with. And they wouldn't, they would have to avoid the kind of extremism. They'd be punished at the ballot box. But because they don't need to win actual outright majorities to win power, they can play this kind of they can play with this kind of politics in a way and play in the kind of this kind of radical extremist politics in a way that mainstream parties that want to win majorities and want to build majority coalitions in Western Europe are not able to do. So I think this way and this way our institutions are actually making our situation more this transition to multiracial democracy even more difficult. You know, as we get uh, near to the, the end of the hour. Um, I want to pivot us to sort of being proactive, and there's a bunch of questions in the chat that are sort of the pleas for, okay, so what do we do? And not only what do we do, but, you know, there are some questions in the chat that are, you know, is it hopeless almost? You, you talk about how difficult it is to amend the Constitution, how with such counter-majoritarian forces, how could you even overcome those to enact reform? So I'd love to ask both of you to reflect a little bit on you know, both either or both of what are the specific things that you think can be done and that people can do? And are there examples or models out there that give you hope about why even faced with some pretty daunting, uh, you know, sort of hills in front of us, you think these are surmountable? And I'm, I'm going to include maybe to start off Beth's question. I mean, are you guys talking to national policymakers about these problems and possible solutions? Um, so maybe Steve, why don't I let you start on that one? Um, you know, sort of all of all of those, what can be done? What's the inspiration? Are you guys doing stuff about this? What can others do? And then, and then Daniel, I'll come back to you. Okay, uh, well, let, let me try to answer a couple of those. First of all, um, let me make a plug for Protect Democracy. We, uh, uh, we do try as much as we can to work with uh, Protect Democracy and other organizations and uh, to get access to, to the public debate and to politicians to make the case for for democratic reforms, and we are uh, so happy that that um, that that organizations like Protect Democracy exist, and uh, we we take advantage of their existence as much as we can to get to to to, to speak to politicians. Let me just point to two areas of um, that might may, maybe help us sleep a little better tonight. A couple areas, reasons for I don't know about optimism, but at least for hope, and then we can talk about what what we can do. Um, First of all, it's important to remember that we have all kind of grown up in an era, in a very strange and kind of unique era in U.S. history, in which the the the, the democratic rules, the democratic system is kind of frozen. And that hasn't always been the case. The founders didn't think the democratic system should be frozen. George Washington wrote a letter to his nephew uh, just weeks or a couple months after the writing of the Constitution, describing the new Constitution as an imperfect document and stating that it's going to, it was going to be up to future generations to improve upon it. And that's exactly what future generations did, beginning with the Bill of Rights, to the gradual expansion of suffrage, to the very important Reconstruction uh, reforms, to the very important progressive era of reforms, to the civil rights reforms, which were not constitutional but were legal, Throughout history, Americans, sometimes from below, sometimes from above, have worked to, um, to make our system more democratic. And it's really only in the last 50-ish years that we've just stopped doing that. We've stopped thinking about, um, uh, about making our system more democratic. So it, it's not some kind of radical adventure we need to go on to think about reforming our system. It's a, it's a great, long-established American tradition. 
The other reason for optimism is that young people are are much, much more comfortable with and supportive of the the principles of multiracial democracy than are um, old folks like us. And um, you know, we're we're the part of the book is about how this transition to multiracial democracy has generated a powerful conservative and even authoritarian reaction. And we're in the middle of that very, very difficult transition. There's never been a democracy in which a dominant ethnic group lost its social societal dominance and its electoral majority. We are the first um, to make that transition. We're in the middle of that tr transition and it's rough. But the reason why I think we'll make it through is that the key principles of multiracial democracy, accepting diversity and supporting and a commitment to racial equality, those values are strongest among uh, millennials and Gen Z. And, um, and so I think those generations, if we empower them, uh, if we get them to vote, if we give them political power, if we empower majorities, they're going to, to reconsolidate our multiracial democracy. Daniel, two minutes. Yeah, can I give you the last word, Ian? I would like to hear what you have to say about what what can be done. I mean, you're you're the you're the activist. I mean, we've laid out a series of institutional reforms, but you know, 2024 is you know only a few months away, right? So, what is it? What is it that people listening in here can do? Yeah. So, I mean, look, there's everything from the creative uh, ideas out there. Donna mentioned something in the chat about can the Constitution's um, representative guarantee clause, which is a clause in the Constitution that guarantees a representative form of government, be animated um, to protect a more democratic system. Um, in fact, uh, our organization has looked very deeply at that. And I think that those are the kind of things that in the future, I think we will look back on and see that they have been activated. Because if you look back at the history of the country, um, constitutional provisions that were not active at one point in time became more active at another, or that meant something at one point in time, separate but equal, uh, eventually uh, came to mean something else, which is equal means equal. And that's been the history of the country. And at every time where it feels like it's you can't make progress, um, there's, there's a breakthrough. And, I, and I've learned something in my uh, political career, which is, um, and I'm a Yankees fan, so I'll quote Yogi Berra on this, which is don't make, it's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. If you had asked the average American in 2003, in the heat of the Iraq war after 9-11, if the next American president's name would be Barack Hussein Obama, nobody would have believed that would be possible. And then similarly, if you had asked Americans in 2011, if the next American president was going to be Donald John Trump, most people would have said that's absolutely impossible. So to the extent that we think there are things that we've talked about today that are absolutely impossible, I give you the names of the last two presidents before the current one as things that were impossible mere years before it happened. How did those things happen? When Barack Obama was elected, people got engaged and optimistic about our country. And one of the things that I felt as a part of that campaign was something that I think Gloria references in the chat, which is a sense of common purpose and common humanity. So we started this, Susan talked about, yes, we got to vote. Absolutely, we got to vote. Everyone here has got to be organized and got to be voting. But the other thing we got to do is we got to model what it means to be fellow Americans again. I know in a moment like this, when there's a lot of fear about the future, we can slip into hostility and nervousness that our neighbor might be a threat to us. But that sort of division, that sort of hostility, that's what authoritarianism thrives on. What democracy thrives on is a, is a sense of common purpose that we're all in a shared endeavor. And pe for people on this call, we are the, the leaders in our communities, the civic leaders who can model that. So I would leave us with this. We must participate. We must vote. We must hold conference, conversations like this. And everybody on this call needs to be a leader in your community trying to turn people away from the anxiety, the fear, the hopelessness on which authoritarianism thrives and orient people towards the idea that anything is possible and the reforms that Daniel and Stephen write about in the book can be the democracy we hand off to our children. And the first step is actually believing that to be possible. And my experience is anything is, especially in the history of this country. So I want to leave us with that thought. Thank Daniel. Thank Stephen. Thank Susan and the Big Tent team. Wish everybody a very happy and healthy holiday and new year and may 2024 
bring more democracy to the United States and to the world. Thank you all very, very much.